Let's get started. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Christology. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off on page 86. We are hopefully going to finish today this chapter on Christ's descent into hell. And what we have seen heretofore is that this is a complicated part of Christology, uh, one of the relatively few areas of theology where patristics don't help us out all that much because the church fathers are so divided on major questions in relation to the descent into hell. The Lutheran confessions make their case on the basis of Luther's Torgau sermon. And really, there are only a few fundamental components of the Lutheran confession that we are, that we are bound to. And again, I think that those are very well summarized on page 83 with the quotation of the Formula of Concord Solid Declaration, Article 9, uh, paragraphs 1 and 2. Herein, the burial and descent into hell are differentiated as distinct articles. There would be, there would be the first component. Okay. And we simply believe that after the burial, the entire person, God and man, descended into hell. That would be the second component, that Christ's descent into hell is done in his body, raised from the dead. And then, as the formula of Concord continues, he conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. That would be the third component. He's not there suffering. To put it in our dogmatic categories, the descent into hell is not part of his humiliation, but part of his exaltation. Christ, raised from the dead in his body, glorified, descends into hell to proclaim his victory and uh, assert his defeat of the devil. All right, so that gives us about as much background as I think we need. We left off on page uh, 86, and we'll simply pick up there with the first full paragraph. You can tell it's a bit middle of the argument, but we'll get caught up nonetheless. Thus, the humiliation of Jesus, Scare writes, confessed in the Apostles' Creed, encompasses the time from the conception of Christ through his burial, and the glorification begins with Christ's descent to hell. So again, we're using these categories of humiliation and glorification, okay, which is a very helpful handle, very helpful way of understanding the way in which Christ is operating. But this definitively puts Christ's descent into hell in the category of glorification. Okay? Though 1 Peter 3.19 does not use spatial language of going down to hell, you recall from last week our extended uh, treatment of 
1 Peter 3 and the difficulties involved with that text. Uh, though 1 Peter 3.19 does not use spatial language of going down to hell, Romans 10.7 speaks of Jesus going down into the depth. And that Greek word is abusos, from which we get abyss. So I think at least a couple sessions ago, a couple weeks ago, someone had asked me if there are other verses that we draw upon other than 1 Peter 3 uh, for the descent doctrine. And of course, Scare has already introduced us to the other major one, the one that Luther seems to depend upon in the Torgau sermon, is really the binding of the strong man. So the two major, the two major texts from which the Lutheran tradition draws are 1 Peter 3 and the binding of the strongman. Uh, strong but these other texts also kind of work their way in to one extent or another. So here... Uh, Romans 10.7 is quoted by Dr. Scare. It speaks of Jesus, quote, going down into the depth or the abusos, the abyss, end quote. Scare continues, the Apostles' Creed, like the creedal language of 1 Peter 3.18 through 22, places the descent between the burial and resurrection, and hence a separate article of faith. In a certain sense, the descent into hell and the resurrection appearances of Jesus to his followers are two sides of the same coin. Now, this is interesting, thought-provoking, I think, uh, scares usage here of this analogy. Like two sides of the same coin are A, the descent into hell, and B, the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So Jesus quickened, made alive by the Spirit, 1 Peter 3, um, there's a sense in which that activity, his being made alive again, then has this twofold effect. On the one hand, his descent into hell and his proclamation of victory there. On the other hand, his resurrection appearances. A fascinating idea that Scare presents. He continues, the descent into hell is the manifestation of God's victory in Jesus over Satan and his claim on mankind. Just as the resurrection appearances are the signs that man has been freed from the consequences of death. Okay, so there's a parallel there. The descent into hell is God's victory over Satan. The resurrection is God's victory over death. Satan conquered by Christ's death and resurrection, thus the descent into hell. Death conquered by Christ's death and resurrection, thus the resurrection appearances. Scare continues, this understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as God's victory over Satan is commonly called the Christus Victor view. Okay? Now we're introduced to the third of these major views, motifs, themes, again, sometimes called theories, though I don't like that language myself, of the atonement. All the way back on, uh, well, you can flip back with me if you like, and we'll just, we'll just remember which pages the other major theories were. If you flip back to uh, 77, page 77, there we were introduced to Peter Abelard and the uh, exemplary or moral view of the atonement. 
We talked about ways in which that's incorrect and ways in which we can understand that as Lutherans correctly. And then going back uh, another 11 pages or maybe it's nine, nine, 10 pages back to 68, there we recall uh, being introduced to the Anselmic view, which is the vicarious atonement, Christ in our place. So now we have a third view presented by Dr. Scare, the Christus Victor view. The Christus Victor view. Again, just by way of shorthand, and it's a little idiosyncratic. I mean, you build your own lightsaber on this one, but when I think of the Anselmic view of the atonement, that's Christ in my place. That's the vicarious atonement. That's Christ suffering for my sins and Christ crediting me with his righteousness, generally speaking. And then when I think of the exemplary uh, or um, moral view, that's Christ saying, whoever would uh, follow me, whoever would be my disciple, must take up his cross. You see, So the way to heaven is the way of the cross and the way of, of living in Christ-like fashion, becoming a son of the Father. Again, it's all by grace through faith apart from works, but there is an ontological reality to this view, uh, a change in our being uh, to this view of the atonement. And then the third, the Christus Victor, uh, again, this is my way of thinking about it, but I think of that in terms of, of power and conquering. You can even hear that in the language of victor. Christ is victorious. You get this beautiful language, in, especially in Luther, I think, uh, where Christ is um, the devil to the devil and death to death and the sin that sin commits and thus sin is sentenced to death, the sin of sin. And it is force to force, that beautiful hymn. Oh, oh gosh, how does it go? Was a strange and uh, dreadful strife yeah, when life and death contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended, or something like that. Um, but there you've got life and death battling head to head. And, of course, life wins. Christ wins. And so that's, that's, in a nutshell, Christus Victor. But now you've got these three major motifs. And, of course, there are, there are numerous others, although most of them usually just borrow component parts from these three categories. So Scare introduces us to the Christus Victor. He conquers the devil and shows this in his descent into hell. He conquers death and shows this in his resurrection appearances. So, once more with that sentence where Scare introduces Christus Victor. This understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as God's victory over Satan is commonly called the Christus Victor view. Seeing the descent as either a continuation or symbol of Christ's suffering or an explanation of his death, deprives the creed and the church of any specific article expressing victory over Satan. Scare continues, since the New Testament and the creeds speak of the resurrection, quote, on the third day, end quote, the question of the time of the descent is not inappropriate. The ancient Roman view spoke of the triduum mortis, 
I, scary explains what that means, but it basically means the, um, the third day, that's triduum, death. During which time Jesus in his soul preached to the souls of the just who were going to be released through his resurrection. You remember the limbo patrum, that we, the limbus patrum that we talked about, the limbo of the fathers. That's the old Roman view to which Scare is referring, but not for the purpose of, again, declaring it to be non-scriptural, for a different purpose. So let's just keep tracking. The quote-unquote third day referenced in the creed as explained previously refers to the length of burial and not to his soul being in hell. You remember Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today, it's Good Friday, today you will be with me in paradise. So what Scare's going to, what scare's going to lead us to, very simply put, is if you're looking at it like this really quite, uh, tight, excuse me, tight chronology, Western mindset way, it's Christ is on the cross, he dies, he commends his spirit into the Father's hand. His body goes into the tomb. His spirit is in heaven with, by the way, the spirit of the, the thief on the cross who was forgiven. Okay. On the third day, he is quickened. He is put back into his body, descends into hell. Scare kind of likes to see this as one and the same event, his descent into hell and his resurrection appearances. Can Christ be two places at once? He is every Sunday. <laughs> Every Lord's Supper, he's, he's, on, he's in heaven, enthroned with God, he's on earth. And yet, are there two Christs, one in heaven, one on earth? No, and so heaven and earth are brought together. And so in this sense, too, like the powers of darkness still inhabiting the world, the, the effects of Christ's death in the world and over the, the powers of darkness, over the abyss, those are brought together, too, so that when Christ is raised, hell... I mean, this would be the way of putting it. When Christ is raised, hell sees it and trembles. He descends into hell as the, as the conqueror. All right? So, again, in terms of our tight chronology, Friday he dies, his soul is in heaven with the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. On... Uh, Early Sunday morning, he's quickened. At that time is his descent into hell. And then he shows himself raised from the dead that very same day. All right, so let's simply continue with Scare. He'll bring us to this point. Looks like right in the middle of that paragraph. During the period in which his body lay buried... His soul was with his father, into whose hands he had commended it, Luke 23, 46. The descent is the first moment of the glorification. In that one moment, Jesus was made alive, both in body and soul, and was seen in the realm of, quote, the things invisible, end quote, i.e., where the angels and departed souls dwell. So there you can see the language of being made alive in body and soul, and that's a, another subtle, a subtle but important distinction. I like the language of quickening for that. Being made alive is fine. It's just not as efficient as quickening. But you have this, this distinction then between the quickening and the resurrection proper, right? I mean, they certainly semantically overlap. 
to be quickened is to be raised in his body. But the resurrection, properly speaking, is emphasizing that aspect whereby he shows himself publicly raised here in, here in this plane of things visible. His showing himself raised publicly in the realm of the invisible, we might call the quickening. So then you see the quickening and the resurrection as two sides of the same coin as Scare is seeing it. Yes, sir. I forgot actually last week when we, you were mentioned about the uh, preach to the souls. Yes. In the, uh, you know, in, in prison, right? That's what it's called. Yes. So can you kind of just go, you know, just going back a little bit on exactly what that actually means of preaching the soul? Right. So when, when Christ descends, um, well, let's, let's simply open up to 1 Peter 3. That way we'll all be looking at the same thing. 1 Peter, Peter 3, I think beginning at verse 18, should do for us. So the question for those of you listening in online, is the preaching to the souls in, in prison, to use Peter's language, and that language of souls... Um, is often also translated as spirits. If you'll bear with me one second, I'll be able to... But on this paragraph, it says, preach to the souls of the just who are going to... Oh, yes, I see. Okay, so in, that, in terms of that question, where uh, Scare mentioned preaching to the souls of the just, that's the old Roman Catholic view, the what Scare calls the ancient. Right, right. So, so Lutherans are not going to hold to or confess that Christ descends into hell to preach to the souls of the just. Because, again, biblical theology doesn't indicate that there's anyone just in this prison. Yeah. You have a really, you have a really hard time. I mean, if you, if you assert that, your rationale is usually because Christ hadn't died yet. But... Are the saints of the Old Testament not still justified by faith apart from works? And if there's such a heavy distinction between an Old Testament saint and a New Testament saint based on the chronological occurrence of the atonement, why doesn't any New Testament author draw that out? Why doesn't Christ himself make that, make that quite explicit and apparent? So, yeah, the preaching of the, uh, uh, to the just is the view of the limbus patrum, Christ so descending. Different. It's different from this, what it says here, against what on 1 Peter 13, 8, 3.18 says, right? Yes, I see. So, right, compare these two. So, again, page 86 in Scare, the very first part of that last paragraph on page 86, um, but the second sentence, the ancient Roman view spoke of the triduum mortis during which time Jesus in his soul preached to the souls of the just. All right, keep that language, that phrase in mind, preached to the souls of the just. Now, 1 Peter 3, uh, 18 19 is really the point, yeah. In which he, Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Not much of a proof text, is it? In fact, it 
<laughs> well, it actually sounds the opposite because the just here in the, in the ancient Roman view, those are the righteous. But what does Peter say they are? Does he say they're just or righteous? He says they're, they were formerly disobedient. And he, and he refers to them as, as prison and, and in prison. And remember, again, we want to, it's maybe to some extent a subtle difference, but an important one. We want to keep in mind that ancient prison, that concept, is different than our concept of prison. You know, in the ancient world, you didn't really have people sitting in cells fed by the state for the rest of their lives. Uh, prison was, by and large, waiting for your judgment, um, which then you're going to be dismissed to a work camp, as Jesus frequently references, or put to death, or some other penalty exacted, and then you would be free to go. Um, so the souls in prison bears already this flavor of a waiting room, a waiting judgment, which is, again, going back to our eschatology studies, is exactly right. Uh, heaven, in its present sense, and hell, or prison, in its present sense, these are waiting rooms. These are places one of paradise and bliss with Jesus, one as prison and darkness and a foretaste of the dread to come. And uh, these are waiting rooms for the resurrection of the body and then the departure into eternal fire, as Revelation puts it, as Jesus puts it, or um, into eternal life and light. Um, so I think, I think C.S. Lewis has a very beautiful and poetic way of putting this, and I'm very much paraphrasing here. But he, he likens, I think this is in The Great Divorce, but I'd have to check. If anybody knows better, let me know. But he likens, he likens hell or prison as being uh, just before, like twilight, just before the sun goes all the way down. It's dark and gray and gloomy, and everybody knows it's about to go black. It's about to get a whole lot worse. Heaven, paradise right now, is like, is like the sun just before, it's like the day just before sunset, just before sunset. That's what heaven is like. It's light, it's bright, it's joyous, but there's an expectation that there's about to be so much more. And I think that beautifully, poetically summarizes and sums up these two different states of being. One, sunset, your day is over, your time was over, and it's about to get, it's about to be completely dark, and another, your time has just begun. Everything is getting better. Everything is about to become more glorious than you could ever imagine. Difference between experience of, of hell and experience of, of heaven. Okay. And of course, we, I, sorry, I thought uh, your question in terms of the souls or spirits are, you know, are we going to, are we here talking about, you know, people or are we talking about fallen angels? And the answer to that question is we don't really know. Um, I think when we went over that, when we went over 1 Peter 3 last week, I probably gave you uh, an indication one way or the other as to which is preferred. I mean, I don't see, yeah, I just don't see it as, I guess my personal take on it is rather agnostic. I don't see it as important one way or another. He's doing the same thing. He's just proclaiming his victory. Okay, and again, 1 Peter 3 is, is difficult in this topic because it wasn't even used for the first few uh, centuries ever as a proof text for the descent into hell. It only comes in later. You recall Augustine himself didn't even think it had anything to do with a descent into hell. He thought it had to do with a previous Old Testament event where Christ came and preached, but be that as it may. All right, let us pick back up then 
at the uh, very bottom of page 86. Last sentence there. Luther, in the Torgau sermon, made authoritative by the formula of Concord, holds that Jesus went to hell with both body and soul. And you can see uh, a quotation there in the footnote. I believe in the Lord Christ, God's Son, who died, was buried, and went to hell. That is, on the entire person, God and man, with soul and body, undivided. This is a translation of Luther's Torgau sermon as it is contained in the Formula of Concord. All right. Continuing, 1 Peter 3.19 identifies this place as the prison, philake, and Romans 10.7, as we previously saw, calls this place the abyss, abusos. The ancient world used the prison to retain prisoners waiting for trial or execution, and its use in 1 Peter 3.18 suggests that these souls are waiting for their eternal condemnation at the final judgment. Abyss is used in Luke 8.31 and Revelation 23 to describe the final state of Satan which that's a little bit of a problematic passage for me from Scared, simply because Luke 8.31, that's, that's the demons begging to, the demons who say that they're legion, begging Jesus not yet to put them into the abyss. It seems to me that there the abyss would be a reference to Fulake, to this, like he's saying, don't send, don't send us to hell, the, you know, the demons are saying, don't send us to hell right now, where we would await the judgment and then be in capital H hell, you know. Saying, don't please let us run around and be free for a little while longer. So to me, that has more of a referent in the intermediary state, the intermediate state. Um, whereas Revelation 23 certainly is the final state. I would just say that Abusos has that fluidity. You can use it both ways. Scare apparently sees both of these as describing the final state of Satan. So take that for what it's worth. He continues. These passages taken together support the view that Christ proclaimed his message not only to those who refused to believe the message of Noah, but to all the dead held captive in the realm of Satan. So there too is you know, one of the challenges in terms of using 1 Peter 3 as a proof text for this doctrine is uh, at least Peter is, seems to be explicit about the preaching being at least maybe it would be better to say Peter highlights that the preaching is done unto those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And we talked at length about that, but once again, it's not necessarily only them. It seems to be Peter's rhetorical purpose to use that imagery and to highlight that group from Noah because he wants to drive to God's salvation through water of Noah and seven others, so that ultimately he can get to our salvation through the waters of baptism and our participation in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So with that being his rhetorical purpose, I don't think it would be, it should be too surprising that he simply highlights that group in order to fit the rhetoric. Scare continues. It was a message heard by him and all evil hosts opposed to Christ and his work. 
the word used for preach, keruso, that's the common word for preach or proclaim, suggests that this was a proclamation of Jesus as Lord. That is, a proclamation of victory. Right, because Christian preaching is, is keruso, I preach. And so it doesn't, it doesn't bear this connotation as if he was going in there like lamenting or mourning his, uh, his ongoing suffering. That just simply doesn't fit with the word keruso at all. All right, any thoughts, any questions you have before we move on to the next paragraph? Do our best to wrap up uh, the descent. I think we've got two paragraphs left, though one's lengthy. All right, off we go. Though the proclamation of this victory is centered in the moment of the appearance of the resurrected Christ to the disobedient, the essential theme of the conflict between God and Satan can be traced throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Man, in his dilemma, finds a way out through the death of Jesus as propitiation. What for man are God's saving activities to restore him as a child of God are for God a reinstatement of his reign over the world. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is that the woman's seed will destroy Satan. Throughout the Old Testament, God contends with Satan in the form of false gods, first for loyalty among the sons of Adam, and then among the children of Abraham. All right, so what's Scare's point? I, you know, you might want to keep a finger there in the text because we'll pick right back up, but Scare's point is even at the very beginning, the first procla proclamation of the gospel, the Proto-Evangelium, that is, uh, that's spoken to the serpent, there's a really kind of a remarkable and wonderful thing. I, it can be overdone, and I overdo it sometimes simply for the rhetorical purpose. But in many respects, our salvation isn't about us. The first gospel was spoken to the serpent. And in many respects, this is a fallen angel who rebelled against God, and then as a result of that, led other angels into rebellion and led human beings into rebellion. The restoration of us and the resistance to him of the holy angels, these are, these are ways of God's victory over him and over the rebellion that he's leading. This is why sometimes you get the, you get the sense when you read the scriptures as if uh, the redemption of humanity is a somewhat secondary or somewhat tangential uh, as, aspect of reality. Yeah, A little bit of a byproduct. A little bit of a byproduct. Now, it's interesting. It's not quite that simple. It's not quite that simple, of course, because part, an essential part of the ongoing rebellion of Satan is this wager over humanity and who's going to be, who's going to be their God. And so thus, thus the incarnation has to do with that essential and foundational uh, wager and battle. So the, the, the battleground between um, the true God and Satan who thinks he can be a better God is the human race, thus the incarnation and the atonement. And so in, a, in effect, we take a center stage, no doubt about it, but really only as a secondary or byproduct aspect of this initial disagreement between the two beings, which I find it rather refreshing and rather interesting to think about in those terms. The first gospel is spoken to Satan <clears throat> in earshot of man and the woman, 
And then throughout the entire Old Testament, God contends with Satan and with all his hordes. Uh, and, we, and if you've been tracking with us as we've gone through Judges and now 1 Samuel and mostly through 2 Samuel, we see that, that the battles with the pagan peoples around them and their gods, these are theological conflicts. These are theological conflicts. So, so this is spiritual warfare, Yahweh against the gods of the nations, Yahweh against Satan. All right. I, again, and you can see um, Scare talking about, you know, God contending with Satan for loyalty among the sons of Adam. That's this idea of who's, you know, who will mankind have as their God, Satan or the true God. This happens first amongst the sons of Adam and then again among the children of Abraham. Scare continues, in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, Jesus Christ appears to crush the head of the ancient tempter and deceiver of mankind. This theme is introduced in the Gospel's account of Jesus' temptation by Satan, who is first overcome by the Word of God and then finally by the cross. And by the way, this victory over Satan in this plane Tune in on Sunday for Revelation 12 because this victory of Jesus, or this victory of Jesus over Satan on the earthly plane or the things visible also has its correspondence in the heavenly plane and the things invisible. So that upon Jesus' incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension, Satan is actually, I mean, cast down. And he does not go quietly. At the ascension of Jesus, and all the disciples are standing there watching Jesus ascend into heaven, that marks, in very short order, the beginning of a heavenly war. War in heaven. So we'll, we'll touch all this, Revelation 12, uh, this coming Sunday, if you're, if you're interested. But again, again, um, that bespeaks the fact that God's battle with Satan is bigger than simply earth human beings, things visible and invisible. It's also one of the reasons why even after, even after Satan is defeated and he's to be cast out in heaven, uh, Jesus has the archangel Michael do it. Because there's a sense in which things have to be righted amongst the human race and there's a sense in which things have to be righted amongst the angelic race. And part of the reason why the angels care so much and are employed to serve us and help us is because it was one of theirs that led to all of this sorrow. Yeah, so there are all these, uh, all these greater, deeper, wonderful realities here as we meditate on this theme that Scare brings to mind, namely the, the uh, age-old battle between God and Satan fought through means, angels, people, etc. All right, then picking up roughly where we left off, uh, this theme is introduced in the gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation by Satan, right, uh, who is first overcome by the word of God. Do you remember the three temptations depicted in the synoptics and then uh, the three quotations of the word of God? And then finally by the cross, right, the cross is where Satan is defeated. In healing these, uh, those possessed by demons, the words of Isaiah 53.4 come true that the suffering servant has borne their sicknesses and diseases by his death. 
Satan was overcome not by a display of divine omnipotence, you know, not by the almighty act of God as such, raw power, but by the divine act of righteousness in the cross through which Satan lost his claims on mankind. God's strength made perfect in weakness, and also God delivering a beautiful insult to Satan that he defeats him. I mean, again, you can, we can talk about this and sermonize on this in many, many ways, but the incarnation itself, that God would become man and in such a way that he's a little helpless baby, and that's how he would come to engage in this cosmic warfare, and that the ultimate victory would come in the humiliating death of the cross. It's certainly God demonstrating his, his strength through weakness, and thus that his weakness is even greater than the strength, the utmost strength of Satan. So it's not, it's not only beautiful, but it's a complete insult, which is fantastic. All right. <clears throat> Satan was overcome not by a display of divine omnipotence, but by the divine act of righteousness in the cross through which Satan lost his claims on mankind. Some early church fathers held that Christ paid a ransom to Satan to release men from this grip. Well, that's a problem. We're going to see why that's a problem. It's just not in the scriptures anywhere. Um, it is the, I'm not sure that this is necessarily intended by C.S. Lewis, but it is the way that Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe functions. If you remember, the, the witch has the claim on Edmund, and that ransom has to be paid to the witch. So the lion has to give his life to the witch in order to buy back Edmund's life, as it were. So, again, I'm not, I'm not, we'd have to ask Dr. Mueller from CUI if, if C.S. Lewis really intended that as a theological statement or if that's simply a better way to write a fictional story, right? Not all aspects reflect reality. Christ wasn't a, uh, Christ wasn't a real lion, of course, with, <laughs> with four legs. All right, so yeah, some early church fathers have this idea of Christ paying a ransom to Satan. And Scare continues, the component parts of this theory were correct. Jesus did offer himself up as a ransom and by this act freed men from the grip of Satan. But there is no New Testament support for the view that he paid the ransom to Satan. Paul makes the connection between death as atonement for sins and release from Satan in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, a passage which may very well be an early creed. Jesus is the incarnate God in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. He was buried and raised from the dead. We're just tracking through Colossians 2, 9 through 15, by the way. Scare's giving us different references. He was buried and raised from the dead, and through these acts, God has forgiven transgressions. This he accomplished by nailing to the cross the charges against mankind to indicate that they were paid. Then he stripped the demonic powers of their protective ornaments and made a public display of his victory over them. The atonement as payment for sins eliminates any claims that Satan as the accuser 
can make against mankind. And again, this is so beautifully put in Revelation 12, I can hardly wait to get there. But we overcome him by the word of the testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, so that the accuser quite literally has no power over us. The source and center of Satan's power over us is his accusation that we are sinners. And his, his perfect ability to bring to mind our very real and concrete sins and, and to bring those objectively before God's throne and say, see, they have in, in mind, in mouth, and in body, they have served me. I am their God, not you. you know, that's, a, that's a valid claim that Satan could make if not for the atonement, if not for Christ paying the penalty of our sins, blotting them out, and so erasing, Christ, erasing Satan's claim on us. All right. So the atonement as payment for sins eliminates any claims that Satan, as the accuser, can make against mankind. Satan is now unable to threaten mankind with the charge that mankind is in debt to God and thus deserves the same doom for which he is destined. Revelation 12, 9 through 11 makes the same connection between the atonement and the conquest over Satan as the accuser. <clears throat> okay, last paragraph of the chapter. At the heart of this theme of Christ as the victor over Satan stands the descent into hell as the focal point as found in the 1 Peter 3 passage, though Luther did not use it in his presentation of the descent. The Christus Victor theme embraces all of Christ's life and not simply his appearance in hell. Christ conquers Satan in the parable of the strong man. Remember how Scarce said he's going to take us through 1 Peter 3 and then weave together the strong man and bring them, bring them together in the Lutheran treatment of this article. That's what he's doing here. So by casting out demons, Christ demonstrates... Did I skip? I might have skipped. The Christus Victor theme embraces all of Christ's life and not simply his appearance in hell. Christ conquers Satan in the parable of the strong man which Jesus uses to demonstrate his authority to exercise demons. By casting out demons, Christ demonstrates that the kingdom of God has come in him. And remember the language of the reign of God uh, that Jeff Gibbs gives to us, Dr. Gibbs gives to us, that the reign of God, the rule of God, has come in Christ, in him. The parable pits two strong men against each other. The one keeps his possessions in his house until the stronger one comes into his house, takes away his weapons, and deprives him of his goods, which is such a beautiful and perfect way of speaking about what Christ does. In his incarnation, he enters the strong man's house. This is Satan's world. He's the God of this world. This house belongs to him. And there Christ first disarms him. How so? The weapon, the chief weapon that Satan uses against, against Christ is the cross. And with that same weapon, he snatches it out of the devil's hands and uses it against the devil so that it will not be his death but our life. And then in snatching the weapons away from Satan, he binds him and begins to plunder his house. So that's the period in which we're living right now. 
Christ, I mean, that's what's going on in the world, is Christ is actively, present tense, plundering the house of Satan. We all right now are in his sack, so to speak, as he's hauling us up into heaven. You could call that sack the Holy Christian Church. And, and Christ in and through us is gathering others into that sack. <laughs> the analogy gets complex. But Christ is plundering and defeating the devil as we speak. That's what's going on. Beautiful, beautiful parable. Depriving him of his goods. That's why when we talk about the you know, Jesus being crucified by two thieves, it's almost humorous because the biggest thief, if you will, is the one in the middle. <laughs> Our Lord Jesus, who is, again, properly understood, he's bound the strong man, Satan, and he's plundering all his goods. Beautiful way of thinking about it. All right, Scare continues. As with most of the parables, Jesus is describing his activities on earth in regard to men. In coming to this world, he enters Satan's domain, first depriving him of his power and then of mankind, which is held under his sway. The Christus Victor view presupposes Christ's death and sacrificial payment for sins and sees the life of Christ as a continuous series of battles, beginning with the temptation and culminating in the cross as the final and victorious battle. The descent into hell is the proclamation of victory in hell, just as the resurrection is the declaration of that victory on earth. All right, well, that scares treatment of Christ's descent into hell. And if you leave this chapter behind with more questions than answers, that's okay. That's the nature of this article, frankly. Um, Yes, uh, just one, one quick thing before I uh, take your comment here, Felix, pardon me. Um, but I do, I do want to simply refer you to the source material, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 9. If you want to read more, or at least find out what the boundaries are that the Book of Concord sets on this doctrine for us formally, that's the place you want to go look. So get a Book of Concord, check out the Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. It's the longer section of the formula. Article 9. Okay, yes, Felix. You can just see uh, on, the, on page 87, mm -hmm. right toward the, uh, you know, <clears throat> down when it says, in healing those possessed by demons, in Isaiah 53, 4, come true that the suffering servant, that's Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. That's in capital, suffering servant. Yes. I mean that he took the, uh, he took all the, uh, all our sins basically, right? By his, by his death. Yes. This, because it has borne their sicknesses and diseases by his death. That means that he took our sins, our bore our sickness, our diseases. Right. I think. I mean, th though Scare doesn't mention it here. I think he's referring to Matthew. Uh, it's a reference to Matthew. And in Matthew's Gospel, it's immediately stated after it's said that this is early in Jesus' ministry, that he's, that he's healing them of all their diseases and casting out demons. Matthew says this is to fulfill Isaiah 53, 4, that he has uh, borne, our, borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, or sicknesses and diseases here in, in scarce rendering. So that's the, the, idea, the idea there really gets to what Scare's talking about in this, in this last paragraph that we did, just covered, 
that the Christus Victor view, the idea of Christ being able to cast the curse, you know, sickness and malady and deformity and handicap and all the things that afflict us, Christ's ability to cast the curse off of us, Christ's ability to press the demonic forces off of us, presupposes that an atonement will be made. That's the language of Isaiah 53, that in pushing these things off of us, he's going to bear them in his own flesh on the cross. Right, yeah, in order to push the cross away, or excuse me, the curse away, he's going to bear the curse on the cross. Um, he's going to carry our diseases in that sense. In order to push the demonic powers away he's going to ha from us, he's going to feel the full brunt of their temptation and force and, and have to triumph over them where neither Adam nor anyone else could. So there's a, yeah, the, the atonement, that theology is presupposed in the Christus Victor. Okay, any other, uh, any other thoughts we have on the descent? Yes. Yeah. What page are we on? 83. Yeah, took from the devil all his might. Yes, okay, so the question for those of you online, I'm referring to the quotation that I began this class with, top of 83, where it talks about Christ descending into hell. Uh, he conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, and took from the devil all his might. That being the devil's might, properly speaking, is sin and death and everlasting punishment. That's the devil's might, if we're going to talk about it in concrete forms. By Christ's by Christ's victorious death on the cross, th that victory then is manifested in, in that Satan, who was accusing the brethren day and night, can no longer do so. Sin has been atoned for. So his power of, of sin and infecting us with rebellion against God, that's undone. We've been reconciled to God. The consequence of that rebellion against God, namely death, to be separated from the one who is life, that's been undone. We've been reconciled back to God and thus share in his life once more. And then our, our eternal destiny is not damnation or death, eternal death, but uh, salvation and eternal life. So I think that that's all that's being said there. His, from, this, um, from this vantage point, from this viewpoint, no, the devil actually doesn't have any might. The devil only has lies. He only has a facade. So, if he, so his might in and of itself is nothing. But if he can convince you that he does have power, that your sins do still stand, that, he, that death and eternal death are God's judgment and everlasting judgment upon you, if he can convince you of that, then he does have power. But you see how it's not a power in and of itself. It's simply a lie. So there's the paradoxical way in which we have to speak. But again, from this viewpoint, it's exactly right. The devil has no power. He only has the, the ability to deceive, which is no power at all. Okay. Off we go into the chapter on the resurrection. We don't have, we don't have much time. But we will, we will jump into this to some extent. I have gone back and forth a little bit in my mind as whether or not to skip around in this chapter. But I think we're just going to plow through it. Simply because the first 
the first part of this chapter highlights uh, many of the errors, those who deny the resurrection of Christ, with a particular view maybe to the 19th, or well, the later 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, the sort of idea of the historical quest for Jesus and the project of demythologizing the Bible. Do you remember all of this from the earlier chapters? I, we kind of pounded this, you know, a bit ad nauseum, I think. So that's my hesitation to go into it once more. But this whole modern idea of, well, we know miracles can't happen, so let's get rid of all the miracles in the Bible and see what really did happen. We know Jesus didn't really talk about his death as atonement or didn't really rise from the dead, so let's cut through all the myth and get down to the, the actual historical true Jesus. I mean, this is real, uh, real history channel type stuff. You know, it's just nonsense and garbage. We're, we're coming up on Christmas. It's not too far away. Or at least that's a sign that I'm getting older when I think of Christmas already in September. It's not being, I guess it's October now. Anyway, Christmas season, no doubt about it, all the specials are going to come out. You know, wow, who was this Jesus? Does the Bible have it right? Look at all the gospels, the quote-unquote gospels the church has hidden from us. I mean, all the usual fall to all. And then, it, and then again, in, it, around Easter, it's even worse, wasn't it? isn't it? So, yeah. This all comes from the, these uh, movements in higher criticism, these movements of uh, demythologizing the scriptures and finding the historical Jesus, which of course in most cases precludes the resurrection because as we all know, as enlightened 21st century people, the resurrection can't happen. I mean, we're every bit as enlightened as the Corinthians that Paul has to deal with who are arguing that the resurrection can't happen because how is God going to raise us in these bodies that have been disintegrated or lost at sea or whatever else? All right, yes. Going back to what you said, the devil has no power. Mm -hmm. So the power is coming from God's curse, actually. So if the devil deceived us mm -hmm. to sin, mm -hmm. so it activates the curse of God. Sure. On the, con on the consequence of the sin, that's what it creates all this uh, evil or all these bad things. Yes, yes. That's a great way of articulating it. I mean, God has restored the human race to himself and reconciled us, and the devil's power is in, con is in convincing us to turn our backs on that, mm -hmm. to not believe that, to reject that and walk away from that. And then the power, even then, properly speaking, isn't his. It's like, it's God's, right? Um, because then that's the power of judgment and wrath. And Yeah, yeah, good point. Good way to articulate that. All right. Well, actually, you know, with five minutes left, let's just call it a day. We'll jump into the resurrection of Christ next week. Uh, gird your loins, because the first few pages, at least, will be rehashing old and obnoxious errors. The Lord be with you.